Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the podcast for people who love British military history and hearing a great story. Today I've got something a little bit different. It's not Victorian, it's not Georgian military history, it's actually quite modern. We're looking at Operation Banner, which was the longest continuous deployment in British military history. For those who don't know, that was the deployment to Northern Ireland between 1969 to 2007, during what's known as the Troubles. Joining me to talk about it is author Jonathan Trigg. He usually writes about the German military in World War II. He's also written about the Battle of Hastings. But his latest book is called Death in the Fields, the IRA in East Tyrone. And it looks at both the IRA and the British Army during the fight in East Tyrone. Before we kick off the interview, though, I did want to take a moment to ask you to subscribe, to leave a comment. These things really help. They help the podcast to grow and for others to find it and to celebrate Britain's history. If you're feeling particularly generous, you can also go to my website, redcoathistory.com, where you'll see a link and you can sign up for my newsletter. It costs you nothing. And in exchange, you'll get a free copy of my book all about the Anglo-Zulu War. OK, guys, well, without further ado, let's head on over to the interview with Jonathan. First off, John, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your own background and your own writing and what made you decide to, to write this book about Northern Ireland? Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. Really appreciate it. Um, so, so, yeah, name's John Trigg. Um, I got a history degree from Bristol University um, and then decided the best thing to do with that history degree was to go into the army. Um, why not? So went in and graduated from the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst, um, uh, joined my regiment. 1st Battalion Royal Anglian Regiment, served all over the place, had, had a great time, ended up as a, a captain after I'd served in Northern Ireland and Bosnia. Um, and then I finished up my time in the uh, Arabian Gulf uh, on loan service, um, where in effect the British Army rent out, as uh, for a better word, rent out um, uh, officers and NCOs to, to friendly governments uh, to, train their, to train their soldiers. And I ran their desert warfare school and their, their counter-terrorism school and, and, and several other things for them. Um, and then I'm after that- sounds like a, It sounds like a great career. Sounds really interesting. It was, to be honest, it was. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I had a, had, a, had a great time. Um, but then, you know, you know how things, these things go. I met a wonderful lady, got married and we decided on a family. And so me di constantly disappearing all over the place for months at a time was, was not such a good idea for family life. So, so came out and did a variety of things, but then really um, went, into, went into writing almost by accident. Um, I picked up my uh, interest in history, uh, obviously from my degree, uh, and thought, well, let's, and I found a, a publisher who was willing to, to take a bit of a punt. Um, on me. Second World War was always my kind of um, uh, kind of main field of interest. Uh, and I've written mainly on that for about the last 10 to 12 years. Um, the books are based on, on long form interviews with veterans. Um, so I've done a lot of, you know, um, German veterans and, and particularly, funny enough, um, I'm interested in the Waffen SS and non-Germans who fought in the Waffen SS alongside the Nazis, so that's taken me all over, all over Europe to Belgium, Holland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, you know, France, you know, you name it, to to interview surviving veterans, find out their stories, and and uh, put them in my books. Brilliant. Well, just just to interrupt there quickly, a lot of listeners to this show won't know this about me, but my initial interest in military history, and I still have multiple bookshelves full of books that are on exactly that. The foreign volunteers of the Waffen-SS has always been a big fascination of mine. I don't know if I'm going to lose listeners for saying that, but it, but it really is. So we, we've got many a shared interest, you and I. I mean, that's, you know, I'm really pleased about that. I, I, I find the whole subject fascinating. And meeting these, meeting these, um, these guys, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely like you, you know, I need to be absolutely clear, is that this is no far-right, extreme, neo-Nazi um, thing. I mean, I was, a, I was, a, you know, an officer in the British Army, um, and so on. And we fought that we fought these guys, um, and you know, would do the same, would do the same again. But but understanding their motivations and understanding their stories um, is is something entirely different. You, know, you can totally and absolutely condemn what they were fighting for, but at the same time, key to understanding why they did it. So, I mean, I interviewed one Norwegian um, SS veteran. And, and, and I went into his room in the care home and the first thing he did was, was fling up a Hitler salute. 
which was which was very disconcerting, I have to say. <laughs> and then and then I asked him why did he why did he join the Boffin SS? And normally they always said they always come up with oh um, um because you know because uh, we were poor and, and and it was a Thursday and, and and so on. And this guy was the first one I ever interviewed who said oh I joined because I was a Nazi. And normally they don't they just they did not ever yeah. admit that. And this guy did. And uh, he said, oh, but I'm not a I'm not a Nazi now. And he goes, well, not not 100 percent. So so, uh, you know, and of course, you, you, you've got to respect the honesty. Absolutely. And you've got you've got to follow that question. So I was going, so if not 100 percent, how many percent are you a Nazi now? And he goes, oh, about 60 percent. And I've, and it's and, and, you know, it starts because because I'm going, well, by 60 percent, what do you mean? Um, what's a what does a 60 percent Nazi believe in? And it, <laughs> it was starts to get all a bit surreal. But but finding out their stories was yeah fascinating. And it's it's. You know, talking to veterans um, in whatever conflict um, that I'm writing about is, is really what motivates me to a, to, a, to a great degree. And your new book, the one we're talking about today, is about the IRA, uh, specifically in East, East Tyrone. What made you want to make that transition then? Because it's a very different subject uh, to then covering, you know, the troubles in Northern Ireland, the IRA and the British Army. What, what made you decide on that? It's a, it's, a, it's a very good question, Chris. I mean, really, it was a very personal motivation. Um, so that was my first operational tour as an army officer was in East Tyrone. Um, so I spent six months there uh, on what we called emergency on an emergency tour. Um, certain parts of Northern Ireland were more dangerous than others. Um, and those were where so, so in, a, in a less dangerous area, the British Army would send a battalion there with their families for two year period uh, in certain parts. You wouldn't take your family and you'd be there for six months. Um, and, and, you know, those were the, the most dangerous areas. And so that was, for me, my first kind of, you know, my, my, my first go in, in operations, uh, uh, being, being you know, face to face with a real enemy um, who are trying to kill me and I'm trying to, to, to kill them. Um, and so, so that, that experience has, has kind of stuck with me ever since. Um, and I, I, so I really wanted to cover the subject. Um, but it was waiting for the right time um, and, and you know, wanting to establish myself as a writer um, and, and learn. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I look back on my first kind of first couple of books and so on. Oh, my God, they're painfully bad, painfully bad. And I, I, I would apologize to anyone for, for having to read them. Uh, hopefully um, I've, I've learned a bit and I'm a bit better now. Um, and, and for me, it was just the, it was the right time. Um, at the right time, the, the veterans from all sides, including the former provisional IRA men, that's on the right age, um, that they were hopefully willing to, to, to meet and have a conversation with me um, and so on. And that turned out to be the turned out to be the case. So, so that's the that's been the motivation, really. And I know with our chat today, we're going to keep it a little bit more general, because I think a lot of my audience, especially those outside of the UK, are probably coming to this conflict fresh for the first time. So I just wondered, could you give us a sense of, we, I know Ireland, and we've touched on this on my podcast before, has seen centuries of violence, uh, particularly between, you know, the, the, the different groups from, from different parts of the UK. But how did what we now call the Troubles, like, really kick off? And, and when was that? Yeah, so Troubles, um, as, we, as we knew them, kicked off in August 1969. Uh, and that was on the back of what was happening around the world at the time, which was civil rights movement. So, you know, American civil rights marches and so on. And you had the, uh, uh, you know, the, the riots in Paris at the times, the student protests and so on. And in, in Northern Ireland, it was specifically between the, 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 the Catholic uh, part of the population and the, the Protestant part of the population, which was the majority. The numbers were about 60, 40 in favour of Protestants to Catholics. Um, and the Northern Irish state, um, as it was, had been set up um, really to, to, to be in favour of the Protestants. And so things that really counted in people's everyday lives. So jobs, housing, it was all biased in favour of the Protestants and, and, and against the Catholics. So there was a lot of, of, of Catholic families who, you know, they were living in squats um, or if they could get any sort of housing at all, um, they couldn't get employed because uh, employers wouldn't take on Catholics. And they were living in under, you know, for the time, you know, very, very squalid conditions. And, and they'd had enough uh, and they wanted to do something about it. So just as as everywhere else in the American South and so on, they, they formed civil rights movements um, and they started to march for for their rights that threatened 
the Protestants in the majority, they reacted very violently, uh, and particularly in the big cities in Belfast and Londonderry, that meant that they would literally burn down Catholics' houses. Uh, and, it, and it caused, it was, it was you know, on, on, on TV, it was highlights of news, it went around globally, and quite rightly, lots of the, the local Catholic population were very, very scared um, about what was going to happen. And the, the, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which had been founded decades earlier, uh, um, you know, to really get rid of the British out of, out of the rest of Ireland, had, 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 was, was finished as an organisation. Um, it, nothing had really happened in it for years, but a few um, of the of the kind of the old members they had a, they had literally a couple of Lee Enfield rifles and then Thompson machine gun and you know a couple of Stens. That's about it. Um, and they kind of stepped into the breach to help protect um, their local you know Catholic neighbours um, against Protestant mobs trying to burn them out. And that was the real genesis of it. And of course the the the, the state just wasn't equipped. Or, or ready to deal with what was almost turning into a, a civil war. So then how did we go from that to then seeing the British army deployed on the streets of Northern Ireland? What, what made that happen? What was the catalyst for that? Well, it's, it's really the, 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 the rioting um, that was happening between the two communities um, what was, was huge. And the local police force, which is the, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, um, was was a small local police force and just wasn't equipped or, or um, you know didn't have the manpower to deal with with what were mass riots, um, and and there was also the issue that for for many Catholics they saw the RUC as a as a Protestant force that was prejudiced against them anyway, um, and and really over a a, a series of uh, you know a, a couple of months. Um, etc with, with daily riots happening particularly in Londonderry what became known as the Battle of the Bogside um, which was a it's a it's a it's a Catholic dominated area it was slums at the time um, in Londonderry and they basically refused to let the police in um, and and start and it was you know petrol bombs and gunshots and, and so on and, and after all the police simply couldn't deal with the level of trouble as it was. And so they called on uh, the army to come in. Um, and we'd always have troops based there, but they just did, you know, it was seen as a, as a, as a lovely posting. Um, you know, you do some good training and the shooting and, and, you know, game sports were excellent and so on and so on. Um, you were never going to called on to, to, to do anything else. Um, but they called on the army to come in and help because um, the police force were, were, were basically, had, you know, they'd, they'd been done. So they came onto the streets. And at first, the, the Catholic population in particular was extremely glad to see the army because it meant that they were safe. Um, you know, the army's there and it's going to stop the Protestant mobs from, from burning us out, um, which at first is what happened. But unfortunately, it turned, turned sour pretty quickly. And what, what made it turn sour? So they're initially very, very happy. And then what, what changed? Um, the, the, the issue always with when you're trying to bring an army into any civil disturbance and riot situation is it's a hammer to crack a nut. And, and, and the British army is a pretty big hammer. Um, and and they, they, you know, the, the soldiers at the time and the officers involved simply weren't, weren't trained, equipped or, or ready to deal with what was a, was a, was a riot, civil disturbance situation, not you know, an armed revolt or insurrection. Um, I mean, the army at the time had armoured cars, you know, grenades. Um, you know, you don't use grenades in, in, the, in the Falls Road of, of West Belfast. And they didn't understand the situation because you know, obviously the, 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 that divide between Catholics and Protestants, there's still Catholics and Protestants in you know, England and Wales and Scotland and so on. But the times when we used to burn each other out and, you know, go around with pitchforks and what have you is hundreds of years ago. So, so they simply didn't understand the problem um, and, and they saw it very much as, you know, there's, there's rioting in the streets, we need to deal with it. Some people have got a few guns um, and we need to, 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 to deal with that. And, and they went in very, very hard. And um, in, the, in July 1970, um, there was a particular operation in West Belfast on a place called the Falls Road, which is a Catholic dominated part of the, of the city, um, where they, the British Army cordoned it off the entire area. And this is a, you know, we're talking thousands of, of people in, in 
um, back to back terraces um, and didn't let people in or out for several days. Um, and they, you know, they used tear gas and so on, and they searched every house for weapons. Um, and it really turned the population against the army. And that was one of the one of the big turning points. And then that started to happen you know, across the rest of Northern Ireland. I mean, you know, the, the, the classic terrorist um, um, operation is you, you are there to get the authorities to overreact. As soon as they overreact, you, you start to get more support on your side and then you hit them again and then they overreact again and it becomes a vicious circle whereby they just, you know, you just keep on ramping up the pressure and until, until you know, the, 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 hopefully the government's putting tanks on the street. You know, that, that, if you're a terrorist, that, that works. Um, and, and that's what they did. And they, they became very proficient at it, at ramping up the pressure on us. We would overreact and therefore you know, create more of a, a chasm between us and, uh, and the Catholic population in particular. And was part of the problem the fact that during the sort of post-World War II era, Britain had been involved in sort of some campaigns like this, like M Malaya, like uh, Kenya against the Mau Mau. But since then, they'd been focusing on big war on the plains of Central Europe. You know, were there just problems with the sort of training and the, uh, you know, just the thought process behind dealing with civilians? Very, very good point. I mean, you're absolutely right that the mass of the army, even in the in the drawdown after the Second World War away from the empire, the mass of the army very much switched to a NATO, um, you know, North German plane role uh, of you know, tanks, uh, of long range artillery, of, of air power. And so on. and that's what the army was trained and equipped to deal with. You know, the Warsaw Pact forces sweeping um, out of East Germany uh, into West Germany. And that's what we are looking to do. You know, the, the post-imperial drawdown in the main was done by local forces um, you know, and, and police forces with relatively little regular army intervention. They used specialist forces, hence you know, the, the modern SAS came out of the Malayan scouts, um, which were dealing with. And, and, and that was so, so it was relatively small numbers of, of the British army had been involved in those kind of counterinsurgency type campaigns. Um, and they'd also... Those, those things happened a long way away um, from, from Britain. They, they, like you said, they, they were in Kenya, they were in Malaya um, and so on. It was in Indonesia and so on. It was, it was far, far away. It wasn't literally in a part of Britain. I mean, there was, a, there was an apophical tale. Now, whether it's, whether it's actually true or not, I've not been able to, to, to um, uh, find out. So, so I can't pin it down. But when they started, to, to, when the troops arrived in, in Londonderry, and they were trying to get the, the crowds to disperse from rioting. They unfolded that you have to, it's called reading, reading the riot act. That's where the, the term comes from. So uh, an, an officer with a megaphone will read out that this is an unlawful demonstration and they must now disperse. And they, the soldiers uh, unrolled a banner um, with the instructions written on in big letters so that people could read it if they couldn't hear. Um, the only problem was the instructions were in Arabic. Um, because because the, the banner had, the banner had last been used in Aden, um, so, um, so so not many of the locals uh, or the soldiers for that matter could could actually read it. Um, and and that was a, you know the the army was used it was equipped and trained and used to dealing with you know if it was dealing with counterinsurgency things far far away. Um, but the but the mass of soldiers it was North German plane. Um, and that's what they were used to. And, and so streets, streets of Belfast and what have you was a world away. So there was this sort of mismanagement then, it sounds like, by, by the authorities, by, by the army brass. How did that then affect the growth of the IRA? How quickly did they develop and, and how were they organised? It's, it's really the, the, you know, yeah, the, the British army kind of high command does have, I mean, if, if, at the same time, I can understand how difficult it was for them to adjust. But I don't think that they um, did a did a, a brilliant job, um, particularly in the first kind of couple of years. And I think that the task was kind of too much for them. Um, and of course, you know, as we as we mentioned earlier, when they made a blunder, you know, it just fueled IRA support. And really, in those first kind of few years from 69 to 72, 73, um, I mean, Northern Ireland, particularly the cities, particularly Londonderry and, and, and Belfast, I mean, it was like the Wild West. Um, you know, soldiers would go out and patrol and they'd be running gun battles up and down the streets. 
Um, you know, snipers absolutely. I, mean, I interviewed lots of soldiers, and they said it was. You, you would you would have a contact. You know, you'd be you'd be hit by an ambush or a shoot and whatever on almost every single patrol that you went out on. Um, and, and, and the people running up and down the streets with guns, taking pot shots at you and you're shooting at them and trying to, you know, trying obviously not to hit the, the, the local civilians and so on. Um, and there was a, a big groundswell of support for the IRA. Lots of youngsters kind of flooded in to their ranks um, and, and the way they structured. I mean, this is one of the one of the strange things I've always thought about um, uh, paramilitary, um, call them freedom fighters, terrorist paramilitaries, whatever um, you want to, but they always tend to organize themselves in, in much the same way, or they attempt to, of the of the enemy that they're facing. So so they call themselves, you know, and the IRA, they call themselves military titles. So they'd say, oh, we're the second, you know, West Belfast company, the Bally Murphy company of the of the of the second West, you know, West Belfast battalion. So they organize themselves in companies, battalions and then and then brigades um, all. under. But those, those names had no uh, reflection in, in what people would know as military reality. So a, a platoon in a normal infantry um, a regiment and so on would have 30 men, company 100 um, and a battalion 600. Um, in an IRA company, there'd be 20, um, in a battalion, maybe 50, um, and so on. So, so they, they don't correspond in terms of, of, of size, um, but that's how they, they'd organise themselves. Um, they'd all be local. Um, so you would literally join your local unit that, that, that deals with your patch of streets. Um, and it's your home turf and you know everyone and everybody knows you. Um, and that's the way they were, they were organised up until, up until the early 70s. Um, when that structure about 73, 74 started to fall apart because the, the police in particular had got so many informers throughout the organization. That, that, and because these guys all knew each other, you know, you were you joined the IRA on, on your street and so on, and you knew everyone else who was in the IRA in that street. So so if you got him, you know, you got Patrick to become an informer, Patrick could tell you about everybody else on that street. Um, and that was a that was a real problem for them. So they, they switched over and it was Jerry Adams who uh, led the switch. He wrote the paper um, that, that, that really informed the IRA about it. Um, and he switched to what he called active service units, which were what we would see now as, as, as classic um, cell structure for modern terrorism. Um, so we're talking you know, four to eight people at most in one unit and only the commander would know would know really anyone outside of that unit. All the others would just know each other. So if one was, you know, one turned to the to the police and became an informer and what have you, they wouldn't be able to uh, to give them information on a whole host of other people. It would just be on a small number of people, uh, and that way it became uh, well far more efficient um, and and far more deadly. And what sort of operations were these guys running and, and how effective were they in general? I know that's a very broad question, but just, you know, can you maybe give us one or two examples? Absolutely. So, so in, the, in the 70s, very much so, uh, in the early 70s, it tend, it, like I said, it was the Wild West. And it tends to be um, much of the violence was concentrated in the cities, um, in Belfast and, 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 and Londonderry. And it was shoots. So they would literally, right, let's let's. We think there's, there's some soldiers going to come out of this base at some point. They always do. They come on patrol. So let's go and grab um, some guns from a from from a cache that we've got, and they'll have a, you know, maybe an, an armor light and a couple of, of of M1 Garands and what have you. And then they'd wait for them at the end of the street. Soldiers would come along and they open fire, um, and you have a running gun battle, um, you know, with them. They also carry out their bombing campaigns. Um, worst was was uh, in Belfast called Bloody Friday where uh, the, uh, the IRA, uh, uh, over a dozen bombs were set off within a, a kind of a, a 10 hour period in the city in commercial premises. More than 10 people were, were killed, dozens were injured, and there were no warning bombs placed in bus depots or department stores and what have you. The countryside, which is most Northern Ireland, it's a, it's a very rural place, um, was, was relatively quiet. Um, but then particularly as the, as the, as the 80s, uh, kind of came around um, they started to be far more effective in the countryside and it, it's all about terrain in, in war as, as, as I'm sure your listeners uh, you know know from from their historical knowledge what you can do in the city is is restricted because you know of collateral damage as, as we know it now you know if you 
Um, if you carry out shoots and, and, and bombings there, the chances are that local, um, innocent local civilians are going to get, you know, killed or injured. Out in the countryside, there's far less, um, you know, of that. So, so for instance, in East Tyrone um, themselves, uh, so in 1988, um, in July, there was a, a, an incident called the Ballygawley bus bombing, um, where soldiers from 1st Battalion Light Infantry, they'd been home on leave, um, they'd flown back into um, Belfast Airport, transferred onto a, an army coach, and were going to their barracks in Omer, um, which is Tyrone's county town. And it's late at night on a, on a Saturday, uh, and they passed a telegraph pole uh, on the main A5 road, which is which is single, you know, it's, it's not dual carriageway or whatever. Um, and boom, um, there was a there was a lorry trailer parked by the side of the road, 200 pounds of high explosive in it. Um, and that was done by command wire. So the, the, the IRA volunteers um, on that operation were on a hill above the road. They had a command wire which went all the way under the road through a, through a, a drainage culvert to the bomb itself. And as soon as the bus reached the bomb, bang, press the button, up it goes. Bus was blown uh, about 40 feet off the road into the uh, into the field. Um, a dozen, uh, well, eight, eight light infantrymen um, were, were killed um, and everyone else uh, was, was very badly wounded um, at the time. And that it was that sort of attack that they did. They would also carry out um, uh, close quarter assassinations on, because there was a lot of locally raised um, uh, army units. So the big one was the Ulster Defence Regiment, who, which was which was a, one of the British Army's strangest ever units because it was a militia type unit. So they had small numbers of full time members of the UDR, but the majority of members were, you know, milkmen, bus drivers, um, you know, coal deliverymen. Um, you know, teachers. In fact, don't you open you you open the book? I think with the story of a postman being shot on his rounds. Is that right? Sammy Brush, yeah, postman, one one of many, and and so that's what he would do for his his normal job, and then once he finished his job, he'd go home, put on his his UDR uniform, and go out on patrol that night around his local village, around his local town, um, and and of course those people, because of their local knowledge, were seen understandably so by the IRA as prime targets. So, so they would, they, they were, they were, as far as the IRA is concerned, they were never off duty. So if, you know, one was so Sammy, yeah, perfect example. He's there delivering a letter. Um, it was what's called a, a come on operation. Um, so that letter was actually posted by the IRA to that location in order to, to lure him to it. It's an isolated house. Um, far from anywhere else, um, etc. So, so they basically lay in wait for him, post that letter, knowing he's a member of the UDR, knowing that's on his round, knowing that he's going to arrive um, uh, and deliver that letter, and they're they're waiting for him. And they they did that a lot. They waited for for bin men, um, one guy called Ned Johnston, um, who did that, and so on. And that's you know, and they they really did. You know, they became more knowledgeable about people's routine. Um, and that's the kind of attacks then that they'd they'd carry out. I mean, one guy who was a major in the UDR called George Shaw. He was 52 and a father of two, uh, lived on Coal Island Road um, in Dungannon. And Thursday morning, um, 85, it was it was it's bin day. Um, so George left his house and took his took his rubbish to the bottom of the bottom of the drive for the for the bin truck to uh, to take. And as he got to the bottom of the drive, two gunmen stood up. Um, other side of the road, um, heads above the hedge, and, and with assault rifles, and, and shot him dead. Um, and that's you know that's the type of attack that was that was happening more and more, particularly in the eighties. And were there IRA units that were seen as elite or more effective than others? I mean, example, your book focuses on East Tyrone. Was was there specific areas and specific units that were seen as most effective, and that were maybe? I don't want to use the word feared, but, you know, that concerned the British Army more than others. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I, I wouldn't say fear would be a would be a bad term, Chris. Um, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the biggest one that, that, that was feared and everyone. And, and, you know, you were you were afraid of it, but also you see it as a challenge um, and so on. So, so you, you know, funnily enough, you know, but it, you know what young men are like. They're drawn to fear. There's a reason young people, you know, surf in South Africa near sharks um, and, and, you know, paraglide and, and you know, do free fall parachuting and all this type of thing. It tends to be young people because they've got no fear of death. 
Um, and that, that's that's very much how we were too. And the, the, the most effective IRA unit was the South Armagh Brigade. Um, and they were traditionally uh, seen as, as being you know, the best that the IRA had. From their community, there were hardly any Protestants in the area, very, very tight knit local communities, same families that lived there for you know centuries, really. So everybody knew each other. Um, they were used to, they did a lot of smuggling back in the day. So they were used to, you know, uh, kind of foxing the authorities. So, so they were very, very successful. Um, Easter Own was, was, was next. Again, much like South Armagh, um, same type of very close-knit rural communities. Um, lots of people, you know, worked in farming. So, so light engineering skills. They knew how things work. They're very practical um, uh, people uh, and so on. So, so that tends to work. The, the city brigades were always the biggest. Um, as you'd expect, so particularly Belfast, but Londonderry as well. Um, but they became less effective over time, mainly because um, they had issues with informers. Um, you know, the, the, the RUC in particular would, you know, turn members of the organisation um, and they would be able to gather an awful lot of information. And those units as well started to, as we, as we touched on earlier, started to become very, very concerned about the media war. Um, and if that they... If they did carry out a, a bomb attack trying to hit a passing army patrol and they killed a local child by accident, that would be splashed across the media and would do them an awful lot of harm. Um, so they became more and more wary of, of carrying out the sort of attacks that would cause the security forces um, casualties, but might also hit their own people. And so South Armagh was one of the keys, one, one of the key units. And East Tyrone, the focus of your book, was there a specific unit there who, who was seen as particularly effective? Yes, there was. And um, they, it was called the A-Team after the 1980s, you know, show with B.A. Baracus and, 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 and all that type of thing. Um, and, and they didn't use the term themselves, um, et cetera. But there was, there was um, literally about eight, about eight of them on the team. Um, and, and they had supports um, around them and so on, a mix of mix of guys. So half the team were older guys, so um, early 30s, um, and they'd been in the IRA for, for, for a dozen years each. Most of them had spent time in prison uh, and they were they were hardcore IRA volunteers and they'd been involved in dozens of operations. So we're talking about Easter Ames commanders, a guy called Patrick Kelly, um, another volunteer who came from actually Southern Ireland, from County Monaghan. Uh, a guy called Jim Liner, um, and another uh, another guy from a from a well-known Republican family. You know, three of his the, three, well, two of his brothers um, were also in the IRA. A guy called Podrick McKerney, um, and they were all all dedicated volunteers of, of long standing. And then along with them, they had you know four young guys. So youngest was 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 nineteen. A guy called James Donnelly, uh, and they were kind of early twenties, and they were really learning their trade. They'd been involved in operations. Um, they've been involved in some shootings and some, some bombings, um, but they were still learning. Um, they were going to be the next generation, if you like, but they operated together. They carried out a whole series of well-planned um, attacks that the two biggest ones they did were against. They decided on a, on a strategy of trying to clear a, a, a band of territory along the, the border between Northern Ireland and, uh, and the Republic uh, by destroying RUC police stations. Um, and the idea was if you can get rid of um, you know, all vestiges of government authority, then they could, the, in fact, the IRA would then control that border zone. Uh, and so in 1985, they um, attacked the RUC station at a village called Balagorli, um, and they um, shot dead two RUC constables and blew the, blew the place up with a beer keg bomb um, afterwards. Um, and then the following year, they attacked another station called the Birches. Um, they attacked that a bit later, so there was no one in that station. It was, it was closed up um, at that stage at night. And in that one, they used a, a JCB digger with a big with big bucket on the front. They put a bomb in the bucket. Um, and so the first thing they did was um, uh, uh, the gunman shot the place up um, and so on. It's all very, it looks all very dramatic. And then they crashed the, the digger through the security fence into the actual station itself, lit the fuse, um, literally like in, you know, like you see in the films you know, with the Zippo, light the fuse, off they run, bang, uh, and, and the station blew up. Um, and that was, you know, that was what they were looking to do from then onwards. And of course, that led to 
um, the worst ever disaster to fall east terrain, which was not cool. So we've talked a little bit about some of the elite IRA units. At what point did Britain's special forces units get involved? I know, of course, you know, the SAS were involved, 2-2 SAS, but also there was units like the Debt uh, and people like that. How did these units get involved and what sort of operations were they running to try and counter all of this? I mean, the first really on the scene, um, you know, was the SAS, um, early 70s. Uh, and that was that was done. Harold Wilson was the British prime minister at the time. And that was done really for, for, for PR. And um, there'd been a whole series of, of, of very large IRA attacks at the time. And Wilson was under real pressure to do something. So he announced that the SAS were, were going to be sent to Northern Ireland, which was a great surprise for the SAS because no one had told them beforehand so they were literally sitting there watching the news to be told by the way you go to Northern Ireland um, and and they really didn't get involved in a major way um, until the kind of the, the, the late 70s early 80s where they would act um, really as the kind of the lethal end of the the, the British response to the IRA um, and so typically they would be tasked to carry out an ambush um, on uh, a suspected weapons cache where the IRA put explosives or guns and so on and where there was intelligence that would say you know people are going to so IRA volunteers at some point over the next two three days are going to arrive get those guns to carry out an operation um, and in which case the SAS will be tasked to hopefully arrest um, those volunteers if not and the, the the operation went hot they would then uh, um, act accordingly uh, and would usually shoot them, shoot them dead. But that was very much the, the kind of the lethal end of special forces operations in Ireland and was, was relatively few and far between. That, that did not happen regularly. Um, the, 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 the bigger thing was the debt, as you, as you uh, rightly described, it went under several names as it, as it kind of transitioned. Um, 14 Intelligence Company is what most people uh, knew it as. And uh, just as with the SAS, um, you had to be in the regular forces to volunteer, and you volunteered for a, a selection course, uh, mainly run in the beautiful rolling hills of Wales, where it doesn't rain at all, um, you know, and it's not cold and freezing and, 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 and bloody awful most of the time. Um, and you went through a very, very long selection and training process. And what you were there for was surveillance. So you weren't there primarily to, you know, take on and shoot um, IRA volunteers. You were there to provide the, the, the long-term intelligence and surveillance on suspects that would enable either the police to, to arrest those individuals, uh, you know, in, in the act, find enough evidence on them to arrest them and, and convict them and send them to jail, or if necessary, for the SAS to, to become involved and, um, and then to, to, to ambush the terrorists and, if necessary, shoot them dead. Um, and, and the RUC also um, they had their own uh, kind of special units, um, one called E4A, catchy, catchy title, um, I've always thought, but that was their kind of armed response unit, because all, unlike everywhere else in, in Great Britain, the Northern Ireland was the only place where normal police um, officers carried guns. Um, so if you were an IUC constable, then you carried, a, you carried a pistol at all times, which of course, as you know, does not happen anywhere else um, you know, in Great Britain. Um, and most of the time you'd also be, you know, you, we'd be walking around with an assault rifle, um, which, which, you know, the, but they wouldn't be involved. Those normal constables would not be involved in the type of operations that E4A would be. Um, and, and we'd use a whole variety of, of, of others, particularly in the 70s, lots of kind of ad hoc units. So there was the MRF um, and so on, which were kind of local initiatives, really. So units being set up by local commanders to try and mainly it's, it's most of the time it's around intelligence gathering if you if you want to 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 tackle um you know the, the, the ira in your local area you've got to have intelligence on them because the vast majority of people aren't involved they're going about their normal daily routine um and and they're not they're not terrorists themselves they don't get involved um, relatively small number you need to know who they are where they are and what they're doing so this, this is a, a bit of a strange reference, and, and you may laugh. Uh, people outside the UK will have no clue what I'm talking about. But as a kid, I remember watching an episode of a TV show called The Bill. I don't know if you remember it, about Metropolitan Police. And there was an episode of that where they arrest this Irish guy for suspicion of being a terrorist. 
and they bring him to their police station. He's got this deep Irish accent and he's a builder or whatever and he refuses to speak to anyone except, you know, the station commander. And eventually at the end of the episode, they finally get him in, a, in an interview room with the station commander, drops his Irish accent, Suddenly goes, hello sir, my name's Captain So-and-so with 22nd SAS. And I just remember as a kid just being blown away by that, that there's these guys who basically live undercover and, you know, and, and, and I guess that's exactly what happened, is it? It, it's, it was relatively few and far between, but, you, but you're right. I mean, there, there were um, the, the RUC uh, and the army, uh, after a while, when they, when they twigged that intelligence was the key to, to, to success, um, knew that they either had to insert agents into um, the, the paramilitary organizations. And, and that was the, the, the Protestant paramilitaries as well, um, because in response to, well, in parallel with the, 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 the birth and the growth of the IRA, the Protestants had their own um, paramilitary organizations, the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Freedom Fighters um, and so on. And, and, to, and to beat them, you have to know who they were. So they would either... The, the police and the army would either insert agents, such as your man um, in the bill, um, and they were very difficult to, to insert because in most of these areas, as we touched on before, everyone would know each other. So, so having suddenly someone arrive um, out of, you know, from out of the area that they didn't know, they weren't related to, hadn't been to the same school, and they go, oh, hello, um, um, even, with a, even if they managed to get an accent, you know, come, uh, I'd like to join the IRA or the Ulster Volunteer Force. They go, really, really? Do you want to do that? Okay. Um, who are you again? Uh, and 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 it was tremendously difficult. I mean, it's things like accent check. So you're from you're from Leicester, Chris, and so yeah. on. Now, so and you've lived in South Africa for quite a long time now. But you know, you would know the difference between a Cockney accent, a, you know, a, a, a Brummy accent, you know, a Welsh accent, Cornish. You know, you you yeah. you'd know all of that. And of course. Northern Ireland is no different. So, so if you're born in Belfast, you would know that's a Londonderry accent. That's different, or that's a that's a the South Armagh one, or, or hang on a sec, they're from they're from over the border in County Donegal. So, so they yeah. knew. So, trying to and, and we just you know it's very very difficult to, to to emulate that. But so so the main weight of intelligence was actually carried out by informers within the the, the paramilitary organisations themselves. And I, I interviewed quite a few special branch officers who ran uh, the informers within uh, within the, the, the paramilitary organizations and you know over time they got better and better at it so what they would do is they'd identify someone fairly young so who'd become a member of the ira or the ulster volunteer force you know 18 19 and they'd kind of follow their career and wait till they were 21 22 so they had a few years you know that they were experienced they were accepted into the organization um, and so on. And then they'd say, right, that 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 guy, he is going to go far. I've looked at him. He knows what he's doing. And so on. So I'm going to go and turn him. Um, and then they would follow uh, a program of of just incredible intensity on that individual. And they said, that's that's, you know, we would make sure they knew that we knew who they were and that they were never going to get a moment's peace. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't be hauled in and beaten up or anything like that nothing you know no, nothing of, the, of that nature but they would just be in the face of that of that paramilitary all day every night just you know when they put their bins out in the morning they'd be there when they got to work they'd be going hello when they finished work they'd be going until they they realized that they, they, they are never going to get away from it um uh, and then they would just work on them and they'd work and then and they, they try and convince them they make an approach try and convince them to to work with them and and they'd say no and then they try again and they try again and they tried 40 50 times until until this guy knew that he's never going to leave me alone ever and so what am i what am i going to do and 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 they start to realize that you know your your their options are at some point i'm i'm going to get caught and then i'm going to spend the majority of my adult life in prison you know, I'm going to be sent away for possession of explosives, possession of a weapon. And these are these are, are 20 year sentences and you don't get time off for good behavior. You serve 20 years. Um, and that's that's your that adult life kind of gone. Um, and, or you're going to get killed. Um, you'll be you'll be picking up a weapons uh, at a hide and the SAS will be waiting and bang, you know, you're dead. So so on, on a lot of premises, they would then say, right, OK, I'll start to give you a bit of information, a bit of information. Um, and then they, they'd use all sorts of, of, of tactics. And one of, one, one of the ones that 
um, I was told about that I was genuinely shocked to hear was that, you know, most of these, most of the paramilitaries don't have pension plans. You know, <laughs> amazingly, you know, who would think, who would think you join the IRA and get a, get a pension? Um, but they didn't have pension plans. So they would be, um, they'd become an informer and then they will be made a member of the Armed Forces Pension Scheme. Wow. Uh, and because, of course, the, the, the MOD pension scheme is absolutely massive, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of members. So they would then be joined. And so they would know that because, of course, you couldn't give them a lot of money on a day to day basis. Because if you're a if you're a, a you know, paramilitary volunteer in the Ulster Volunteer Force or the IRA and all of a sudden, you know, you turn up with a brand new car and you're going on holiday you know, to Florida for two weeks and you're flashing the cash everywhere, then everyone's going to go, where did you get that money? Um, and, and, you know, you, you're going to end up dead very very quickly um so they give them a few a few quid keep them going so they could have some nice things and, and so on look after their families but not much but then you've got a pension and then you get to age 55 and so on and then you you know you turn around to your fellow paramilitaries and go done my you know i'm tired i've done my stint um i'm gonna move down south to republic and, and retire with my wife mary and they go oh thanks thanks brendan you've been absolutely great you know keep in touch and all that type of thing and off you head and you disappear you don't disappear to the public you disappear to england and set up home and draw your military pension and and then you're looked after for for the rest of your life yeah no, it makes it makes sense and you can see how how that makes sense from both sides it did make me laugh though the recruitment technique i think my two kids uh, have studied that because they they seem to follow me everywhere and nag me all the time until they get what they want as well <laughs> you see, you're absolutely right. It works. It works. Just be persistent. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, that I think your kids sound as though they would be perfect in, in, in IUC 12, in the special branch. Um, yeah. You know, and that's the way persistence pays off. It always does. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's let's move forward because I'm aware we, we don't have all day. So I'm interested to know, looking back now, how... So, so essentially, am I right in saying the conflict, at least what we know as the Troubles, kind of ended with a Good Friday Agreement. I can't remember what year that was. Was it late 90s, early 2000s? Early 2000s, yeah. So we had the 25th anniversary um, a few, a couple of, about a month ago. Um, that's one of the Good Friday Agreement. So, uh, so yeah, 25 years ago this year. And looking back then, you've done obviously a lot of research on this. Looking back... Militarily speaking, obviously, this sort of counterinsurgency warfare is very, very complicated. But militarily speaking, how effective would you say the British Army was? That is a that is a very, very good question, a very difficult question. I, th I think, you know, as we kind of touched on before, in the first few years, the British Army really struggled. Um, and it was it was parts of it were used to dealing with counterinsurgency, but a long way away where British rule, well, British law, in effect, didn't really uh, um, operate. It operated under different local um, uh, legal restrictions, which were, to put it mildly, a bit more lax than, than you could operate in British soil, because, of course, Northern Ireland um, was and is part of Britain. Um, and, and that that is the dominating factor in dealing with it. I mean, my, on, you know, a bit of an aside, and, and I apologise, but I always remember my first tour there, uh, um, Easter own, and I was, you know, we patrolled out and we were due to be brought back in by helicopter. There was no movement on the roads um, at the time when I was there because the, the IRA would blow you up with, uh, with, with landmines too much. So you went everywhere by helicopter or, or on foot. No helicopters to bring us back in after patrol. So we, we patrolled in by foot. And I, I'm, I'm going up Dungannon High Street and I look in the window and it's a Woolworths. And again, this probably won't mean anything to, to, to people. Uh, non-British people uh, and so on, but Woolworths is a well was a was a, a store that that sold toys and and famously pick and mix sweets, you know, and all that type of thing. You went in there, and I caught my my image in the the, the plate glass window out front, and I'm there. I'm in full combat, I'm helmet, I've got body armor on, um, I've got you know my, my encoded radio. I'm carrying an assault rifle that's loaded and so on, and I'm looking at people who are just speaking my language, they're British, and they're walking up and down the street and walking in and out of Woolworths. And, 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 and it's surreal. And they pay no attention to you. They, they just see you as that, that's perfectly normal. If you can imagine doing that on any other street, anywhere, you know, in help, people will be running for cover, you know, screaming in fear, and rightly so. But at that time and place, it just seemed 
perfectly normal. Um, and then by that stage, by the by the kind of late 80s, early 90s, you know, the, the British Army, in terms of its counterinsurgency skills, was 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 excellent. Um, it had, you know, in terms of its equipment, its training, you know, its experience levels um, was very very high. And and to be honest, it, I think you know the. the the disadvantage was what that gave. It gave, and, and I'll, I'll use word, it gave the British Army a, a bit of arrogance about what it could achieve. So the when the likes of um, you know Iraq and Afghanistan came along, um, the British Army had a had a sense of itself that, that, that oh we can you know we're used to dealing with counterinsurgency. We know what we do, and we're going to be absolutely great. And they were caught you know flat-footed because of course those were those were very very different scenarios. Um, and you know they weren't in complete control. I mean, the, the, obviously, the, you know the, those type of, of of operations. You know, one of the biggest learnings is unified command, and of course there wasn't any because the the Americans are in control, and we were a small part of that, operating with lots and lots of of other partners, pretty much independently. Um, and that, and we weren't quick enough in terms of uh, dealing with our, our equipment needs, and so on. So in the early days, there was lots of things in 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 Iraq, for instance, about our troops were in unarmored Land Rovers. Yeah, like snatches and so yeah, forth. exactly. Snatched Land Rovers with hardly any helicopters, and you yeah. know, and, and of course they just got blown to bits. Um, and wearing berets and no body armor and stuff. Exactly. So, so and and it, and it did. We kind of we we did. We, we got ahead of ourselves, and we thought, oh, we're you know, British Army said, oh, we're we're absolutely great. And actually, they needed to be a bit more humble. Um, I think. And again, it took time. Institutions take time to learn, unfortunately. Um, and, and but as and, they always say, for, throughout history. Every army, including the British Army, always prepares for the last war it fought. Right, so they're always a generation behind. Yes, I mean you're absolutely right, and 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 that was it. I mean, you know, Iraq when it started was was you know, I mean, obviously first Gulf War and then second and so on was back to the the the, the plains of Germany almost. I it's it's all about tanks, artillery, missiles, and so on. Nothing about you know hearts and minds and small scale counterinsurgency work. And of course, we'd forgotten that. To an extent, because we got used to to fighting small scale insurgency wars again, and you know you are spot up, and and in a lot of ways you can say you know if you're the if you are you know, the British Army or any other army, how do you know what conflicts you're going to get involved in next, and how can you prepare for it? Because there's not the money and the, the resources and, and and effort whatever to be able to prepare for absolutely every sort of conflict. Um, so, but yes, it was. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm glad it's over. I hope it stays over. Um, in Ireland, that's for sure. Um, but uh, but you know, people have people have short memories, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And you know, and, and there are still there are still some things going on over there. Uh, I mean, a lot of the, uh, the paramilitaries on both sides, both Protestant and and and, and Catholic, um, in effect, they you know they've been doing this for years. They they haven't they're not skilled to a job. What do you what do you do if you no longer carrying out terrorist attacks? You know, it's very difficult to say, oh, I'm going to get a job with the post office or whatever. It's 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 almost impossible. And so a lot of them became ODCs, you know, ordinary decent criminals. Um, uh, OK, was this was this related to sort of organized crime and things sort of move sideways? Yeah, cause, yeah I mean, because, you know, there's a I'm, I'm not saying that the paramilitary organizations were organized crime organizations. But if you look at it objectively, they're structured in much the same way. Uh, and they're armed and they know what they're doing and, so, and and just as they used to raise money to fund their their paramilitary activities now they could continue to raise money in illegal ways to fund themselves um and so some of them at least have have, have, have done that um and so carried on and they're, they're in control of their own areas um be it protestant and catholic and and yeah they they, they run a whole host of, of illegal activities and now fund themselves and this question, I'm throwing it at you a bit, and it's probably beyond the scope of your research, and it's more, more opinion-based, so feel free to, to fudge it or not answer. But do you, do you foresee, are you concerned about the fact that the Tribbles could return? Is that something that you think is a, is a possibility, or you think we're, we're out of that dark place now? So that's, you know, incredibly difficult question to answer. But, but yes, I am concerned. Um, yeah, there's been a number of attacks uh, the last kind of you know two three years. Um, and just a couple of months ago, a senior policeman in Northern Ireland, a guy called uh, John Colwell, um, was he'd taken his son to to football training. He was the local coach, coach for the local boys team, 
uh, and it was the end of the training session and he went into the car park with his son he's loading the, the footballs into the boot of his car and two gunmen came up and shot him um, now he's still alive um, he's critical um, you know in hospital but he's, he's, he's still alive but that was um, um, they called themselves the, you know the, the, the new IRA um, and these are these are young guys they, you know those are, uh, some suspects have been arrested and then released um, without charge um, and, and they're in their 20s so, so they can't possibly be involved before but they are youngsters who've probably been brought up in that tradition and they don't believe the war is over um, and looking at the history and you know you mentioned it when we started there has been you know intermittent trouble in Ireland for, for centuries and so it's a very very brave man who would turn around and say oh no it's never going to happen again um, and so I do I do worry that if we don't keep on focusing on it and keep on keep on doing things like this so keep on telling people you know what it was like reminding them of the the horror uh, of what it you know what it was um, and so on then then there's always a danger that we might return and, and that would be that would be a real tragedy and we're nearly there now but in the process of your research how did people respond to to you to wanting to interview them like Generally, are you finding that most people who were heavily involved during the Troubles, whether as, as combatants or, you know, just civilians who lived through it, are they generally now quite happy to talk or did you have a lot of problems getting people to open up? That's, that's a, that's, that is a very good question. Um, it depended on their, their, their willingness to talk, depending on their background. So if they were former British Army, um, because of my own background, they tend to be quite willing to, they were quite happy to talk. They felt safe space. Um, same if they were um, former RUC police and special branch and so on. So they're happy to do that. The, the former Protestant paramilitaries, they were quite happy because, of course, they um, erroneously believed that they were, you know, fighting the same war as the army. It's like we were against the IRA as well. It's like going, well, you know, no, you weren't, because if you, you know, if you really wanted to do that, you could join the police, you could join the UDI, you could join the army. Uh, and those are legal organizations that operate under the rule of law, whereas you joined a paramilitary organization. So what makes you different from them? Um, but they were willing to talk to me again because of my background. Um, the most difficult ones were, were former IRA members, um, still very, very wary indeed. Um, they're concerned about um, uh, giving things away that might end them up in, you know, end in hot water for them. Now, so even though they might get charged with uh, with more crimes and end up in court and, and so much one none of them want to do. Um, and and they're, they're worried, um, understandably, about what's going to be written about them um, and how they're going to be portrayed. Uh, and so I was, was, you know, always incredibly keen to um, uh, win their trust over a period of time and, and treat them you know, objectively. You know, they're, they're not my friends. Um, I'm not their friend and, and you know we're not we're not going to be at all that isn't that isn't the deal but treat them in a professional courteous manner um and so be knowledgeable um about them because of course for them it was incredibly real uh, and if i could demonstrate that i had a knowledge and understanding of what they were doing and, and going through at the time that that bought me a lot of um a lot of trust from them and, and it took it took some real time um and you know the way it works you tend to go from one to the other so you meet with one uh and you know at the end of the interview he feels he's been given you know a fair crack of the whip um and that you've treated him with some with with respect um and then the next thing you know you get a call from him saying look there's someone else i'd like you to meet um so then you meet them and then they introduce you to someone else who introduced you to someone else and so on and so on and that way you start to um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, gain as much information as you possibly can. I mean, the difficulty always is, though, is that, as, as always in these in these things, um, is that you can't, you, you know, you, you give them the, the blurb at the, at the beginning, which is how do you want to, you know, do you want to be quoted? And, and if not, you know, is it on the record? Is it off the record? Um, almost all of them want to be anonymous. And that's always a problem um, because, I, you know, I, I would love to, to, to get them on the record by name but can't force them. Um, and if I ever broke one of their confidences, you know, that, that was it, no one would ever speak to me about it again. So, um, so it was difficult, it was very, very difficult. It took a, took a lot of time um, to kind of build, build up that level of, of trust and confidence with them that they'd speak to me. 
Yeah, brilliant. Well, for anyone who wants to get hold of the book, what's the best way to do it? Uh, best best way to do it. So, so go on to you know go on to the interweb as ever. Um, and Amazon, so it's all, it's all, it's all over Amazon, so you can order it. Um, it's on all through the, the, the publishers themselves, which is Merion Press. Um, so go onto their website. You can even, I've got a website myself, www.jonathantrigg.co.uk. You can order the book through that. And, you know, I will, if you wish, I, you know, I can even, uh, you know, sign it and send you a signed copy and, and so on, um, et cetera, can do that. And again, if you want to contact me, there's a, there's a contact um, function on my website. Uh, and so on so so you can, it emails me direct um etc and and you know i'd love to hear from um you know your listeners any any questions or comments you know good bad indifferent whatever um you know I, I want to hear what people think um and i will i will do my best to respond and uh, you know respond as much accuracy as a, as a, as i possibly can um so but yeah i, I encourage everyone to get and if you don't want to read my book that's absolutely fine but look up something about northern ireland see if anything takes your interest and and go read it it's a fascinating period of history um and so and you know one that the british army was was you know the it was the operation banner as as, as it was called was a was the operation Northern Ireland. it's the longest um operation the british army has ever been involved in um and so on in its history so it is a a huge part of the of the British um, of British history and British Army history. So if your listeners want to want to read more about it, I always encourage them to do so. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you very very much. Uh, really appreciate it. I learned a lot actually. Thank you. And I really did learn a lot from that interview. It's not a conflict I knew much about growing up. It was in the news regularly, but I couldn't tell you anything about it to be honest. So that was fascinating for me. Okay, guys, we'll be back soon with more of my series on the Indian Mutiny of 1857 and back to regular broadcasts on Victorian and Napoleonic British military history. I will see you soon. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.